This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. Building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. We began with a scripture back in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32. I'm going to read that to you while you're turning to the other places. The, uh, the point in time in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 is when David, has, um, uh, he's been anointed to be king of Israel uh, while Saul is still king. And Saul recognizes the hand of God is upon him, so Saul's trying to kill him. So David's out running for his life, basically. And while he's out there, the Lord brings uh, other people to him. And it tells of all the people that, uh, that, that God brought to David uh, that uh, he turned into what was called David's mighty men. And it says of one group of people, 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32, and it says, And of the children of Issachar, it's naming all the different tribes and who came and, and things like that. And it says, And of the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. The heads of them were 200, and all their brethren were at their commandment. That, that verse of Scripture has always stood out to me, in, in, uh, well, from the time that I read it, probably 30 years, 35 years ago. And it's uh, the, the phrases that really get to me is, uh, first of all, they had understanding of the times. That's important for us. It's important for us to know where we live as far as God's time frame is concerned. But then it says something even further, and, 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 you know, you can, honestly, you can study Revelation, you can study the end times, you can study a lot of things that a lot of people seem to do. A lot of ministries really focus on that. But then it goes further about these folks, and, I, and it seems to me that a lot of people that, that spend a lot of their time studying about the end times miss the import of what this verse is really trying to say. It said they have understanding of the times, and here was the result, to know what Israel ought to do. See, a lot of people know about the end times, but they don't know what they ought to do. I want to read 1 Timothy chapter 4 and then 2 Timothy chapter 3. But I want to read it to you from the message translation. Now, I don't recommend the message translation in most cases because the message, the, the, the message Bible is really not a translation. It's a paraphrase. And so you can't take the message and, and go back to the original language and stuff like that like you can with the King James and, and a few others. But I want to, because of the, um, because of the difficulty of some of the words that are used in the King James, I want to read these verses of Scripture to you from the message. Now, you follow along in the King James or whatever you read with, whatever you've got uh, uh, with you, and it, it may be on the screen as well while I read. But I, this really kind of brings it out in, in common language that I, I want you to hear this. First Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says that the Spirit makes it clear. This is Paul writing to Timothy, who's a minister. Paul told Timothy more about the condition of the world in the last days than he told anybody else. Because he needs to know what to do with things that are coming. Now, Paul didn't give him a time frame. Paul speaks in, in, uh, in such a way that these are the, th- the way things are going to be before you die. Which we know now, almost 2,000 years later, things are continuing and, and lining up with exactly what he said. So he says this. Chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit makes clear that as time goes on, some are going to give up on the faith and chase after demonic illusions put forth by professional liars. These liars have lied so well and for so long that they've lost their capacity for truth. They will tell you not to get married. They'll tell you not to eat this or that food. Perfectly good food that God created to be eaten heartily and with thanksgiving by believers who know better. Then I want you to look with me over to 2 Timothy chapter, uh, what is it, 2 Timothy chapter 3, I think it is. Here's the second letter that Paul writes to Timothy. 
And he goes into even more detail. This is the last thing he says to Timothy. This is the, this, well, actually, he identifies to Timothy that he's about to go home to be with the Lord. And uh, church history tells us that Paul was martyred very soon after he wrote this letter. So he said this, chapter 3, 2 Timothy. He said, don't be naive. Again, this is from the message translation. Don't be naive. There are difficult times ahead. As the end approaches, people are going to be self-absorbed, money-hungry, self-promoting, stuck-up, profane, contemptuous of parents, crude, coarse, dog-eat-dog, unbending, slanderers, impulsively wild, savage, cynical, treacherous, ruthless, bloated windbags, addicted to lust and allergic to God. They'll make a show of religion, but behind the scenes they're animals. Stay clear of these people. Now, who's he talking about? When he's talking in First Timothy, the first letter that he wrote, chapter 4, when he's talking about doctrines of devils, King James says doctrines of devils and seducing spirits, well, who's he talking about? Is he talking about the world? Well, folks, has there ever been a time that the, that the world hasn't been carried away with doctrines of devils and seducing spirits? Is there any reason for the Holy Ghost to identify that about the world? I mean, don't we know that the world is dominated by the devil already? When Paul writes this in the second letter to Timothy... Chapter 3, when he says that these difficult times are, are coming along and that men are going to be this way, what men is he talking about? Is he talking about men of the world? Well, when have men of the world not been like that? When have the unsaved not operated in that manner? He's got to be talking about the church. And, it, and it's proven by the fact that Paul says to Timothy in both cases, here's what you do about it. Hold fast to the things that I taught you, he said in the first letter. In the second letter, he said, preach the word. There's only one thing that's going to make a difference. And please understand, he's talking about there's going to be a distinction between those who are believers in and doers of the word and the way that the church looks very much like the world. Now, when does he mean? Well, he's talking about the end times. He said the Spirit speaks expressly that in the end times, this is what it's going to be like. So what is he telling us? He's telling us that the church... A certain segment of the church, at least, is going to be deceived. Because nobody operates this way. No Christian operates in either of these conditions, either of the things that Paul identifies in the first letter he wrote to Timothy or the second letter that he wrote to Timothy, except that they are deceived. You sure can't get this kind of behavior from what Jesus said to live like. So if you're living like this, then you've got to be deceived if you're claiming to be a Christian. Right? Right? It's always caught my attention that Jesus said in, uh, in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21, when he, he walks through the temple and he says, the, the disciples are all gaga about it. and said, oh, have you ever seen anything as beautiful as this place? Well, it was Herod's temple. Jesus despised Herod's temple because it wasn't built to the glory of God. Man built it to the glory of man. And so Jesus said there's coming a time where there won't be one stone left upon another. Now, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., just some 36, 37 years later from the point when Jesus said that because there was gold, because Herod had put gold in the, the, uh, the mortar between the stones. They took one, every stone off of the other one to get the gold out of the middle. And so Jesus was speaking very literally. He said there will not be one stone left upon another. And then he started talking about the end times and, and his disciples came to him afterwards and said, well, Lord, when is this going to be? The first thing Jesus said is, take heed that you be not deceived. Now, we usually go back to going down to the, the following verses where it talks about earthquakes and people against people and, and different things like that, plagues and famines and pestilences. First thing Jesus said was the sign of the end was don't be deceived. 
Don't be deceived. The rest of it doesn't matter if you're deceived. So he said, take heed that you be not deceived. So folks, if we understand the end, if we understand that we are at the end times, then the number one thing that we need to guard against is being deceived so that we don't become these people that Paul wrote to Timothy about and that we don't miss the things that Jesus told us about the end. Now, I would submit to you that most of the church world, most of the church world, now if we're talking percentages, it's certainly over half. I don't know how much to give it to because I'm not the one that controls what the church is doing around the world. And I don't even, there's a lot of things that are going on around the world that we don't even know. There's a lot of good things that are happening around the world that we'll never even hear of till we get to heaven. We'll hear all the bad stuff. Don't, don't worry about that. That's a, that's a guarantee. And so we have a tendency to think that everything is going down the tubes. Folks, you need to realize every generation has said about the young people that they're going to the dogs. I started to bring up a quote that, that, that was written back in the 1920s about the condition of the, of the young people. And it's exactly what's happening today. Every, every adult generation has complained about the younger generation. Because they don't seem to care. They don't have the same character. They don't have the same desire for the things that are right and so forth. That's gone on from the beginning of time. Yet Paul says about the church that one of the things, one of the characteristics will be disobedience to parents. There's a supernatural work among the young people. For that reason, young people, you need to make sure that you're not deceived. You may just think you're doing what other people are doing, but it's not. You are being pushed like a wind pushes the sails of a ship. And that wind is an evil wind. It's part of what's happening in the last days. So what do we do? Well, there's only one answer, and that is the only way to keep from being deceived is to hold fast to the Word. Join Mike Webb and Foothill Family Church every Sunday night at 6 p.m. for our weekly healing school. Healing school is for those who are in need of being healed from sickness in their body, as well as those who want to strengthen their faith in the area of healing. The Bible says Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses on the cross. He was wounded, Isaiah 53, 5 says he was wounded for your transgressions, that's sins. He was bruised for your iniquities, that's sins. The chastisement of your peace was upon him, that's provision. That's the penalty or the, uh, uh, the overcoming of the curse of poverty. And by his stripes, you were healed. That's the overcoming of sickness. The Bible says in the same verse, the same verse that Jesus paid the price for your sins, he paid the price for your sickness. Now, if somebody was coming to get saved, we wouldn't expect them to pray all night to see if God would do it, would we? Why is it different with healing? Jesus paid the same price at the same time. Foothill Family Church is in Orange County at the corner of Bake Parkway and Lake Forest Drive, just minutes off the 5 Freeway. To learn more about how you and your family can connect with Foothill Family Church, simply log on to mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. Now, it seems to me that the church has to guard against being deceived in three areas. They have to guard against being deceived about who God is. They have to guard against being deceived about who the devil is. And they have to guard against being deceived about who they are. Because those are all areas that the devil works against us. Now, you know as well as I do that the devil works one and only one way, and that's deception. If he can't get you deceived about what you're doing or make you justify what you're doing, then you're not going to do what's wrong. Right? And how many times have we planned to do something or or caught ourselves doing something, didn't see anything wrong with it, and then immediately when we did it, our heart condemned us and we realized, oh, gosh, I shouldn't have done that. Well, why didn't we see that ahead of time? 
You know, the problem with deception is you don't know you're being deceived. And so the people that are deceived are going to be just as forceful, just as confident, just as bold in what they're doing and what they're proclaiming as people who are holding fast to the truth of the word. Because they think they're right. Folks, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. Good people loved God with all their hearts. And they told me things about God that were wrong. And they were sure of what they were telling me. Well, according to the Bible, they were wrong. I could talk to some of those same people today, and they would be just as sure today of the things that they told me that I know from life experience, not just from what the Bible says is wrong. That's the problem with deception. You don't know when you're deceived. Now, how does the devil try to deceive us? You know, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul's talking about uh, uh, a condition that uh, existed in the Corinthian church. You remember in 1 Corinthians, there was a guy that took his mother's wife and, uh, and Paul deals with it. Well, the second letter, the, what we know of is the second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, is where Paul says, now, it's a good thing that this guy turned around. Remember, in the first letter, Paul said he's turned him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. God doesn't destroy flesh. But there is an authority in the church to turn somebody over for the good of the church, for the well-being and the protection of the church, to turn somebody over to Satan for that flesh, the flesh of that individual to be destroyed, that they might learn not to blaspheme and their spirit was saved in the day of the Lord. You continue to go in the wrong things and, and you can lose your place with God. The Bible's pretty clear on saying that. Now I know a lot of people are uncomfortable with that, and I'd like to think that's the exception. But the Bible still identifies it. Well, the second letter of the Corinthians, apparently the guy turned around. Something happened, whether it was the threat of Paul turning him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, or his flesh really began to hurt him enough to where he changed. Because then he turns around, and Paul says, now bring him back into the fold. Don't treat him like he's still an outsider. He's repented. And then he goes further. He says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, he says, For we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. In other words, he's saying, if you guys treat him like there's still something wrong with him, even though he's repented, then the devil can use that to bring a wedge in between the church and create division. But he says, don't do that because we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. But I've got to tell you, it seems to me like most of the church world is ignorant of Satan's devices. Now, what does that mean? That means they're deceived. Because the Bible tells you what Satan's devices are. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that we should put on the whole armor of God, that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That wiles of the devil literally means the traveling over, the road that the devil travels. So many people don't know which road the devil travels. He only has one road. But people don't know what that road is. That one road is into the mind. He doesn't have access to your spirit. He can't force you to do something with your flesh. The only thing he can do is try to convince you or influence you through your mind. The mind is the battleground of the devil. You ever going to fight the devil? It's going to be in the mind. It's the only place you fight him. You fight him with your mind. What does that mean? That means the struggle is for us to think right so that we're not deceived. People that believe the wrong things of God believe the wrong things of God because they think the wrong things of God. You can't believe the wrong things of God unless you think wrong about God. You can't believe right about God unless you think right about God. But so many people don't know how the devil operates. And that seems to me to be what the, what Paul is saying about the last days. It's saying people are going to be pulled away so far from the word of God that they'll accept anything and start living like the world lives. Now, folks, don't make the mistake of reading these scriptures and think that people are going to be sitting around thinking, how can I be God's enemy? The world does that, but the church doesn't do that. 
This is not going to be a matter of people purposely or plotting to do harm against the Christian way of life. It's going to be people that don't know because they're not in the Word. It's going to be people that don't know because they're not hearing the Word preached. It's going to be people that don't know because they're ignorant. I came across a... uh, I wasn't going to read this to you, but I am now. I came across a quote this week from Augustine. Augustine was one of the early church fathers. He was a a church leader in, um, what would it be, late 4th century, early 5th century. He said this. He said, it is the duty then of the interpreter and teacher of Holy Scripture. That means a Christian minister. It is the duty then of the interpreter and teacher of Holy Scripture, the defender of the true faith, the opponent of error. Here's his duty. Both to teach what is right and refute what is wrong. And in the performance of this task, to conciliate the hostile, to rouse the careless, and here's the one I want you to get, and to tell the ignorant both what is occurring at present and what is probable in the future. Folks, I would submit to you that most of the Christian world right now, at least the American church, let's just talk about the American church. We know about us. Most of the American church is ignorant of what is happening now and what is probable in the future. What does that mean? That means they're deceived. Because the Bible gives you the answers. Okay, thanks for coming. (laughs) Is there any room for disagreement on this? I mean, is this just me? I know some people walk out of here saying, well, that was just Pastor Mike. Really? Is this just me? Folks, it's not just me. It's the way the world is going. I would submit most of the country is being carried away by those who are ignorant of what's really going on. I'm not talking about the leaders. I'm talking about the people that put the leaders in position. And every poll you look at, that's the Christian. Now, how does the devil operate? Well, the Bible says that you're made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. When you make Jesus the Lord of your life, you are made the righteousness of God, right? The Bible says whom the Son sets free is free indeed. That means free in every area. That means you are free from anything and everything the devil could bring against you or attempt against you. It's already done. It's a given. It's finished. That's why Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father is because it's already done. That means there's not one thing left to do for you to be healed, for you to be prosperous, for you to be free from sin, for you to do anything or have anything. It's all yours now. But what does the devil do? He robs us not of our righteous nature. He can't do that. But he robs us of the practice of that righteousness in our in our lives by trying to bind us with sin through wrong thinking. He tells us first and foremost that you aren't free. Yeah, you might be going to heaven. He might even finally give that up. Okay, you'll go to heaven when you die. But as long as you're here, you know you're going to be bound by the desires of your flesh. Well, the Bible says that's not necessarily so. The Bible says you can overcome the desires of your flesh. By thinking right, speaking right, and living right. You've got the power to do it. But how does he keep people bound? How does he keep the most, the majority of the church world, how does he keep them bound? He keeps them bound by wrong thinking, and therefore he robs them of the blessing of that righteous nature through the practice of their lives. Same thing's true where sickness is concerned. The Bible says you are healed by the stripes of Jesus. It doesn't say you're going to be. It doesn't say when we get to heaven, then we'll be healed. I get so frustrated with people saying, well, if we don't receive our healing here, we'll receive it there. Like you need it there? There's no sickness in heaven. There's nothing to be healed of. 
That's ridiculous. That's just taking one part of what the Bible says belongs to us and compromising with the devil and saying, well, okay, it might not happen here. Look, you can have it however you want to. I'm going to have mine here. The Bible says it's already mine. So therefore, it's not a matter of me getting my healing. It's a matter of me keeping the devil from stealing it from me. How does he try to steal it from me? He brings thoughts, he brings circumstances, and he tries to rob me of the practice or the experience of healing that Jesus already purchased. It's only one road he travels, folks. Same thing's true where prosperity is concerned. The Bible says that Jesus was made poor for your sake so that you, through his poverty, on the cross, the chastisement of your peace is what he suffered on the cross. You, through his poverty, on the cross, might be rich. You are rich now no matter how much money you got in the bank. Just as much as you are healed now no matter whether sickness is attacking your body or not. How does he try to rob us of that? He can't rob us of the fact that we've been made rich, so he tries to rob us of the experience, the practice of that prosperity or the experience of that prosperity in our lives. How? By bringing circumstances of lack. And the thought, you're not going to make it this time. It works that way with everything that Jesus purchased for us. In other words, if he can't deceive you about what is yours or how to enjoy or experience what is yours, he can't have what Jesus got you, what Jesus provided for you, right? Same thing's true where society is concerned. The same way that the devil works against us as individuals, the devil, who has only one road to travel, works against society. He tries to change the, the idea or the attitude of society. How does he do that? Well, just like you think, learn to think right in every area, individually as well as corporately or as a society through what the Bible tells you, it's the same hearing, except it's not hearing by the word, that causes society to go the wrong direction. That's why the devil has worked very diligently to get involved in the educational system. Do you know that the number one issue between uh, among people uh, under 30 is gay marriage? You ask people, the polls that ask people, what's the number one issue facing America? What's the biggest problem we have today? And under 30 says, gay marriage. We've got to legalize gay marriage. Really? Remember when jobs was a problem? Remember when the economy was something people talked about as really being something that needed to be fixed? Now all of a sudden it's gay marriage? Legalizing gay marriage is really the issue? Seriously? Now, folks, the devil doesn't care why you're on his side, as long as you're on his side. He doesn't care if it's because you're compassionate and tolerant. And that's why you want gay marriage to be legalized. He doesn't care. You know how many abortions were uh, performed in 2012? 333,964 in America. To bring the the three-year total up to just under, uh, well... 999,000 and, uh, well, it's just under a million. I don't remember the exact number. It was just under a million. Do you know that over 75% of the women who received abortions during that period of time identify themselves as either Christians or Catholic? Over 75%. Folks, abortion is not the world's problem. The abortion is the the church's problem. It's the church that's getting abortions. And you know the, not, the top two reasons for getting abortions? Convenience. One is it wouldn't help my career and we're strapped financially right now. 
People want to talk about abortion. They want to talk about rape and incest. Folks, as terrible as those issues are, as far as the numbers and statistics are concerned, those are non-issues. The problem is the church keeps killing babies. Now, whatever justification there is, and, and please, folks, I'm not trying. If if somebody here has has had a baby aborted or, or experienced some terrible issues like rape or incest or things like that, I'm not excusing anything, and I'm not trying to bring condemnation on anybody. I'm just telling you that the world's in a mess. I'm not blaming you. I'm not blaming. I'm putting blame on any individual. And I know a lot of people who say, yeah, Pastor Mike is a man. It's real easy for you to say. Well, okay, say what you want to about it. But the fact is still the same. The fact is that the church is killing babies. The fact is that the church is, is violating the most sacred, in my opinion, one of the most sacred principles of Scripture that there is, and that is they're shedding innocent blood. We shouldn't be ignorant of the devil's devices, folks. We should have our eyes wide open to what's going on. We, the church, have some real problems. But there is a dual message that the Holy Spirit brings to the church. Number one, there's a lot of the church that's going to live like the world. There's no question about that. But there's another message, too. I want you to look with me over to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says, by the Holy Ghost, verse 25 of Ephesians 5, he said, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved, for, loved the church. What I want you to see is how does Christ love the church? What's his plan for the church? Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, verse 26, that he might sanctify, that means separate, and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. That or so that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, can I ask you a question? When is Jesus going to present this glorious church to himself? See, just at the same time that we've got Paul telling Timothy, well, things are going to get worse in the church. People are going to turn away. People are going to give heed to seducing or deceiving spirits and doctrines of devils. And men are going to live, Christian men and women are going to live like they're unsaved. That's the way their behavior is going to be. The Spirit of God is very clear about saying that's what's going to happen toward the end. At the same time, he says that Christ is going to present himself a glorious church. Is the glorious church those that, that uh, Paul is identifying in 2 Timothy chapter 3? That are lovers of self and allergic to God? Is that how the message said it? Is that what he's talking about? Is that the glorious church that he's coming for? No. No, it tells us there's going to be a distinction in the church. It tells us the church is going to be two halves. It's going to be one half of those who are still saved, just as saved as you or I, but that have turned away from the truth of the word, have turned away from the knowledge of who God is, who the devil is, and who they are. They're going to be operating in deception because they turned away from the word. But there's another half of the church. I say half, maybe I should say portion of the church, because I don't know what the numbers are going to be. But there's another portion of the church that God is looking at and says Jesus is coming back for a glorious church. The Bible tells us that Jesus is coming back to receive us unto himself. This is known as the rapture. But the Bible also says that he's coming back for a glorious church. That means a church that's filled with the glory of God. That means a church that demonstrates the character and the nature of God. This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. 
So faith begins where the will of God is known. God's Word reveals His will to you. And once you know His will, there is nothing that can stop you from receiving what God has for you. That is the number one problem, the number one objection that everybody has, no matter what the area is, healing or whatever, that is the number one objection that people have. They don't know if it's God's will for them. Well, how are we going to find out? The answer is in the Word. Join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. or Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Visit us online at mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word.